Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone's wide awake. Um, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19 today. Um, we're going to be finishing off the seventh trumpet judgment that began all the way back in Revelation chapter 8. And today's piece of scripture, though it's only five verses, if that, is really, you know, just studying it kind of blew my mind. This is the depth of God's word and what it unfolds to us. What we're going to see this morning is unlike every other judgment, rather than looking to this in-between time during the tribulation where God pours out wrath on the earth, we get to look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and makes everything right. We get to look into our future. And how many people want to know that? You know, we had the, the general election very recently here in this country. And hundreds, if not thousands, but probably hundreds, of politicians and aspiring politicians around the country are going door to door, handing out leaflets, wanting to become a member of Dáil Éireann. And I bet every one of them, the second they submitted their papers to put themselves forward to be nominated as a TD, would have loved to known what the future held. Would they have gotten in? Were they going to be rejected? And would that have changed you know, their campaign? Would it have stopped them from actually going in? Uh, one particular candidate in Waterford, um, I won't say her name, but her husband is actually like a clairvoyant, uh, was supposed to be like a psychotherapist and a, a psychic and a neurologist. And you wonder why he didn't tell her, you know, you weren't going to get in. She didn't get in. Um, Phillips was her last name. So I bet they would have liked to know in the, uh, the future. But don't we all want to know that sometimes? You know, what, how, how, what's it going to come out at the end? What's the outcome of our lives? What does the future whole for us. What God's word answers at this morning, what happens to oh, those of us in this room who trust in Christ for our salvation, and what's going to happen to those who choose to reject God up until the end. So let's read together Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19 together. If you have your Bibles, open up your Bibles. If you don't, it's up on the board as well. So it reads, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell down on their faces, worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Jesus, thank you that we have a future with you, that you, as we sung, God, are that lighthouse that in this present darkness we can look to. God, you give us a hope, you give us security, you give us a purpose, Lord. And I pray this morning, God, as we study um, you, Jesus, and your return and what you're going to do, God, may it impact how we live our lives today. God, would it inspire us to trust you more, to have more faith in you? 
Would you help us to live more faithfully before you, God? And would you help us, Lord, um, to lead people to you, Jesus, and to lead them to the truth of who you are and what you have done for them, God. You have made the way for them to know you. Holy Spirit, we pray for um, understanding in your word today. We pray um, that we would walk away changed as we read your word. So Lord, would you just um, be glorified in this place. Help us to hear what you're saying, God. May your light and your gospel penetrate, God, the darkness of this city and this country and this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Revelation chapter 11, the seventh seal. So again, John, he starts this small section of scripture at the end of chapter 11, telling us that the seventh angel is finally going to blow his trumpet. Now, the last time, as we said earlier, we've seen these trumpets being blown was in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. And it's been maybe close to a month since we actually looked at the trumpet judgments. So perhaps, uh, perhaps a quick refresh is in order. So the first four trumpets that we see in Revelation chapter 8, these are directly against the earth. They strike the earth. The first trumpet is blown. And as that trumpet is blown, we see that a third of all green things on the earth, trees, grass, bushes, plants, are burnt up. The second trumpet is blown, and a third of all the, the fish and the mammals, and even the boats in the ocean, are destroyed. The third trumpet is blown, and all the, a third of the fresh water becomes almost poisonous and more dead. The fourth trumpet is blown, and we see that even the stars in heaven, the sun and the stars that give us light, their light is diminished by another third. And so what we see happening is that as God's judgment is being poured out on this world, as each trumpet is blown, the very people who reject God and try to live their lives on their own, their world is literally falling apart. You know, as people have turned away from God, their world is collapsing in on itself. In Revelation chapter 9, we moved into the, sixth, the fifth and sixth judgment, which turns from a direct, almost attack on nature um, to humanity itself. And in the fifth trumpet, we see these locusts, these demonic creatures being unleashed upon the earth. And we learned in Revelation chapter 9, chapter 8 rather, 9 and 8, 8 and 9, that people at this time were worshipping idols and demons. They were giving their, 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 their themselves over to these statues of gold and silver, bronze, wood, and clay. And they were worshipping demons. And what we see in the fifth and sixth trumpet is the very demons that they worshipped now turned on them. And it describes how they were being stung like scorpions, almost to the point of death, but they could not die. And then as the sixth trumpet is blown, what can only be described as this demonic army starts striking a third of mankind dead. And again, the very creatures that humanity worship are the ones that have brought them death. And so it was heavy. You know, there's a lot happening in there. Um, you know, when we think of our loved ones who we want to see saved and come to Jesus, potentially going through that, it does move you. But what we learn is that God will and has to judge humanity for their sins. You know, justice has to come upon the earth. But even as it is coming upon the earth, we saw that there is still grace. These judgments were measured. Only a third of things were destroyed. God left people. He left them there. God was giving people, even then, 
a chance to repent, though they would not. And so now as John gets back into the trumpet judgments, we see a completely different scenario. And it says that the angel blew his trumpet in verse 15, and there are these loud noises in heaven. You might remember at the start of chapter 8, when the seventh seal was opened by Jesus in heaven, there was a silence in heaven for about 30 minutes, it said. Now as the seventh trumpet is blown, we see an eruption of noise in heaven. Now John doesn't say who is making this noise, but it's most likely angels. These angels, they call God the Father, Lord, and they call Jesus the Christ. Now in the context of the New Testament and of the church, Jesus is always called the Lord of the church, and the Father, he is our, our Father. So many commentators believe, and I believe as well, that these are most likely angels, although it doesn't matter too much. What matters is the praise that they are giving to God. So what is the noise? What is the noise? Verse 15 tells us that they are loud cheers of celebration, where they give thanks to God, where they declare that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of Christ. So they're celebrating the fact that Jesus is now coming back to take his world back to himself. They're rejoicing that the judge of all the earth will once more rule the world with justice and fairness and bring peace. And they're praising God for the fact that the kingdoms of this world will no longer be under the power of sinful men or darkness or the devil himself, but under the Christ. See, justice is finally coming, and there is much rejoicing in heaven over this. And that's basically what verse 15 is about, but there's a lot in here that you should unpack. Because we ask, well, what does it mean that the nations of the world are now become the nations of Christ? You know, isn't this God's world already? Isn't God almighty? Isn't God in control of everything? How is Jesus taking the nations back? So we want to see what that actually means. You know, as, as Isabella sang in the song earlier, this universe was created by God and created for a purpose. And that's important because many people believe that this place, everything we see here, you and me, that we are random and that we are chance and that we have no purpose. Many professionals say that life is meaningless and that and, you know if you reject god how could you not come to that conclusion if this is all an accident why wouldn't you think the world is meaningless and listen to a few quotes i found um, from people who think this way some think it consciously and some think it subconsciously but they say the universe is random it's not inevitable it's chaos it's subatomic particles and endless aimless coalition Another one, we were born by accident into a purely random universe. That's pretty bleak. This one, the universe is all random, radiating aimlessly out of nothing and eventually vanishing forever. The universe, all space, all time, is just a temporary convulsion. Right? There's a website, Quora.com, where people go and they kind of discuss and put up different questions. And one post I came upon was this, why is life so meaningless? Like it's pretty, pretty grim going straight into it, right? But the most upvoted comment that people related to was this. A commentator said, life is meaningless because it wasn't created with an intention. He says, no sentient being created life. It came into being via a natural process. It's like rain. 
what is the meaning of rain falling? There is no meaning, it just falls. Clouds aren't sentient beings who intend something when they drop water onto the ground. He says, our existence is like rain, it just happens. Everything we do just happens and that's it, it's meaningless. You know, that's like nihilism. That's a very extreme philosophy, but it's a logical one for people who if they reject God and reject the creator. But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible teaches that there is purpose, that there is meaning, that you have a reason. Now everything around you is here for a reason, and it's because the Bible begins like this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible teaches all of this is God's creation. He is the creator, and he created it for a purpose. And as we sung, part of that purpose is giving him glory. And so everything, including you and me, we are created by God, and he reigns over us as king. Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 32, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Amos calls God the one who makes his chambers in his heaven and his vaults in the earth. That he is the one who commands the universe, and the Lord is his name. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he designed beforehand. We are God's creatures, his creation, created with a purpose. And this is what the Bible in Genesis 1 reveals, that we were created with a purpose, that God didn't just make us to be mindless animals doing what we want. God created us to rule and reign with him. You know, in Genesis 1, we see God, he creates the universe, and he brings order into it. He brings light, he brings stars, he brings the ocean and the land. He, he creates sea creatures and birds and animals and things that creep on the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, I think Vidya was going to put it on the board, we see he creates man with a purpose. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and all the things that creep on the earth. So we were created to have dominion over this earth. We were created to rule with God. Continuing on in Genesis um, chapter 1, if you skip two verses, verse 28, God gives a commission to mankind. He says, it says God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominions over everything, essentially. And so we were created to rule and reign with God. But if we were created to rule and reign with God, why does Jesus now have to come back in Revelation chapter 11 and take the world back for himself? What, what has gone horribly wrong? The son has to become king by himself once more. Well, something's gone horribly wrong is that we have handed, we have forfeited our rights as humans, this world, and we have handed it over to the devil. This is the very clearest teaching of scripture, that the devil is the god of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, John says, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. He's talking about Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the devil is the god of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, 
who works in the sons of disobedience. And so for the early church and the apostle, they recognized that the devil had a significant sway over this world, the nations of this world, and the things that are happening. And it's not too hard to look around the world today and see that, and see the result of a world not run by our king, but by the devil. Even Jesus, in John chapter 12, refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And it's very interesting, actually, when you look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil, what does he tempt him with? Well, the first thing is, is bread, right? Turn these stones into bread. And the third thing is, you know, jump off the temple. God's angels will catch you. But the very second thing he tempts him with, Luke chapter 4, verse 5. I think the video can show that up too, actually, if you don't have a Bible. It says, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now what doesn't Jesus say here? He doesn't say, Satan, what are you on about? This is my world, not your world. He doesn't say that. Instead he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Even Jesus recognizes that we have handed, humanity has handed this world over to the powers of darkness. And we see this happening back in the garden. In the garden of Eden, Genesis chapter three, Satan, he tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And against God's order, he tells them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so that they may be like God. And what happens is they listen to the voice of the serpent, and they follow and they obey the voice of the serpent. They submit themselves to the advice and the command of the serpent instead of the voice of God. And essentially, they are handing the keys over to the devil at that point. So again, this world is currently under the power of darkness. But the angels here in heaven, in Revelation 11, they are rejoicing that now at this point, this day that we long for, Jesus is coming back for his world because he is the true king. You know, Jesus, who is God and who became man, came to this world to purchase us for himself, but also to buy this world back. You know, on the cross, Jesus not only hung there for our sins, but he put the enemy to open shame. And he defeated darkness, he defeated the sin, he defeated the devil on the cross. He purchased this world back, and a day is coming when all nations will submit to Christ. You know, Paul teaches that because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is what we see unfolding in Revelation. Jesus taking the scroll from his father, taking the title deed to heaven, unrolling it, and the process of him taking back the earth begins. And with the seven trumpets, Jesus is now coming back to rule and reign over this world. I think as we read this text, this one little verse, we're confronted with a question, well, what, who, or who, rather, Whose rule and reign are you trusting in? You know, where is your hope for this world lying? 
Is it the rule and reign of this world or is it the rule and reign of Christ? Again, we, we had a, a general election recently. I can't tell you how many of my peers on Facebook were voting, were shouting, vote for this person, vote for that party, vote left, vote right. This will bring the change, this will make things better. People will have houses, people will have healthcare, people will be safe, people will have all the choices they want. Things will change. Nothing's going to change. Because these people, whether for good intentions or bad intentions, and we're not here to talk politics, are sinners. They are sinners, and sinners will always let you down. Sinners will always fail you. And so the Bible tells us there is another person, another ruler, another king that we can place our hope in. And that is King Jesus. That we can look forward to his reign on this earth, where he will right every wrong, where he will finally bring the change that people cry out for day and night. And his kingdom is eternal. The angels say it will last forever and ever and ever. So in response to these angels now saying Christ is coming to take back this world, we see that the 24 elders in heaven, they start praising God. And in this um, prayer of praise in verses 16 to 18, we see a description of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and a description of our destiny. Again, verses 16 to 18 reads, The 24 elders who sit in their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And so the elders here, which we mentioned before, are symbolic of, of the church and believers saved by the blood of Christ. They are praising God for who he is and what he is about to do. And so the first part of worship, verse 17, is about who God is. You know, their worship always starts with a declaration of who God is. Of what, and then it goes on to what he is going to do. And they say two important truths about who our God is. The first is they say he is all-powerful. They call him Lord God Almighty. And that word almighty, it's the Greek word, it means to have rule over all and to have hold sway over all things. And you know, it's only, this word is only found 10 times in the New Testament, and nine of those 10 times it's found in the book of Revelation. Why is that? Well, think of the comfort it would have brought these Christians in you know, the late 90s. Paul is dead. All the apostles bar John is dead. Persecution is coming to know that they have an almighty God who is in control. And how comforting for us, and no matter what going, you're going through right now, whether you're in a very high place or a very low place right now, God has allowed it to happen for a reason, because he is almighty. And we can trust that he knows what he is doing. Now the second thing they say about him is that he is eternal. They call him the one who is and who was, in verses um, 17. They're saying he is eternal. And you know, when we say God is eternal, yes, it means, you know, he he had no beginning and he had no end. But it also means that he is unchanging. You know, one of the great truths about God is that he is consistent in who he is. You know, we can be very flippant as people. 
We can love each other one day and hate each other the next day over the smallest of things. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. And because he doesn't change, that means every promise he makes, he will keep. Both good and bad, amen? That's important because even our very salvation depends on the promise that God will keep his end of the bargain, that he will save all who trust in Jesus. If God was a God who decided to change his mind when you get to heaven, what comfort is there in that? He wouldn't be eternal. But we have a God who when we get there, when we stand before him, we will be standing in robes of white righteousness because of our faith in the Son of God, because of his promise to us. If he wasn't eternal, why would we study this book? Because he could just change his mind. But he's not. He is faithful. He is unchanging. He is eternal. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, as they move on from declaring who God is, they declare what he's going to do. Once again, they say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So again, Jesus is about to return, but what will he do when he returns? They give us this, almost like a snapshot of everything that's going to happen. You know, what does the future hold? Well, verse 18 says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And so we see two things will happen when Jesus Christ returns. One is that he will bring judgment on the nations and those who have rejected God. And two, he will reward those who have been faithful to the end. You know, there's really no neutrality when it comes to God. You're either for him or against him. And depending on what side of the fence you fall on will determine your future. And the elders here tell us both. So they tell us the judgment first on those who reject God. So the elders say that the nations raged against God, but his wrath came. And they say that the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. And this is language that comes from the book of Psalms, and particularly Psalm chapter 2. Um, Psalm chapter 2, if you have it there, I'll read it. This is the start of it to you, uh, the first four verses of Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So Psalm 2 speaks about how the nations and the people of this world want to cast God aside because they don't want to be answerable to a king. And that's the human problem, isn't it? We want to be the king and the masters of our own destiny. We don't want to have to be accountable to another. We want to rebel against authority. That's what the nations do here. Their, their, their rage, their wrath is against God. And the psalmist says God laughs in the heavens because God is going to send his anointed son to rule and reign with a rod of iron. And so God advises them. He says to the kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord of fear and rejoice the trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So you see, Christ will come and set set himself up as king over these nations that rebel against him. But the second thing that the elders say happens to those who reject Christ is that they will be judged. Christ's coming will be the time for the dead to be judged. And after the end of Jesus' reign, you know, after his thousand-year reign on heaven, on earth rather, once Satan is defeated, once the enemy is put to death once and for all and cast aside, we see this judgment. We see heaven and earth literally melting away and the dead being raised to be judged. And we see this, what's commonly known as the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, verses 11, all the way up to 15. If you if you wouldn't mind showing it up. John records, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second day of death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into that lake. And that's the fate of everyone who does not turn to repent in Jesus. It's a hard thing, it's a heavy thing, but it's the truth. If you reject God up until the end, then you make your choice for your own destiny. And he says the lake of fire is unbelievers' destiny. But then, in the midst of this, we see that for believers, we have a different outcome. We have reward for our faithfulness to God. The elders elders mentioned that upon Christ's return, it'll be a time for rewarding God's servants. And he mentions the prophets, he mentions the saints, but he says, those who fear your name, both small and great. And this is one of the things that we have to look forward to as believers, that we will receive reward from Christ. That we have a reward from Jesus for each and every one of us for our service to him right now on the earth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, the context here, Paul is speaking to believers. He's not speaking to people who are on the fence, who haven't chosen Jesus. He's speaking to people who have been saved by the grace of God. And he's saying that at the end, they will receive a reward for the works they have done, not for their salvation, but once they have received it. And so each one of us will receive reward. Now, we don't have time to get into all the different ways that the Bible talks about this reward. You know, some say crowns in heaven, uh, like in Revelation. Some say, you know, names being written in the book of life. The ultimate reward is salvation, of course. But we will receive reward. 
And it's okay that we don't have time to get into it all because the emphasis is not on what the reward is, but who receives it. Instead, it is God's servants, everyone who fears his name, both small and great. And I love it because that means there is nobody here, if you're a Christian, who cannot serve Jesus and be rewarded for your faithfulness. You know, from the smallest, not physical, but, you know, people who we esteem the least in this room to those who we esteem greatness to from like an earthly perspective. You think, well, how could I receive reward from God? I'm not, you know, I'm working a job. I can barely get to church. The most I can do is maybe hand out coffee on a Sunday morning. The joy is God was not going to judge you for what you are doing, but your faithfulness in doing it. See, God has given us, we are one body with different members. We don't all do the same things, do we? We're not all called to do the same things. There's a reason I don't sing um, from the microphone, because no one would want to hear that. Um, there's a reason some of you do sing, because God has given you voices and gifted you. You know, God will reward us. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, as Christians, we are called to be faithful stewards of the gifts that God has given us. You know, he has given us talents. He's given each one of us at least one spiritual gift. He's given us physical gifts. He's given us bodies that perform to some degree or another. You know, he's given us wealth, possessions. He's given us the gospel to spread. God has given us many good things that we are to steward as a gift as we wait for Christ's return. You know, you can never lose your salvation, but you can reduce the gift. And the question is, are you being faithful with the things that God has given you here and now? You know, again, we look at this world, and sometimes you think, could I just get like a commune and just get away from everything? Because I'm fed up with how crappy the world is and how dark it is. The Bible says, no, we don't just, you know, go off to a monastery and sit there and wait for Jesus to return. We, be, we are to be faithful here and now for what he has given us for his glory. So that's a question I can't answer that for you, but the Holy Spirit can. Are you being faithful to what God has given you? So that's the reward for Christians. But what we also saw there was that unbelievers too, they receive a reward. You know, those who rage against God, that, the same word for rage there is the same word for wrath in the Greek, they receive wrath. Those who destroy God's creation are destroyed and those who reject God have to give an account for every word and deed. But the good news is that God's wrath, which is coming upon you, can pass over you because someone else is taking that wrath for you. you know, for any unbelievers, we know that you don't have to face destruction. You don't have to face the final debt because someone died for you first. And no one in this room has to stand before God 
into our own righteousness because you have the choice to stand before God in Christ's righteousness. You know, he died on the cross for our sins so we can stand before him guiltless. And so those of us who have been saved, we say praise God because that's what he's done in our lives. He has freed us. He has taken away our shame, our reproach, and given us honor and freedom. He has broken every chain. And anyone can turn to him and be saved. And that's amazing. Now we have one verse left, verse 19. It's a very small verse. You won't spend too long on it. But there's something very beautiful that in the midst of this destruction and this judgment and all of these um, plagues coming upon earth, God gives his church a beautiful image of something that's happening in heaven. Verse 19, it reads, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes and lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So in the middle of all this, John tells us that he sees God's temple in heaven opened. Now what we actually see in the next chapter is that there is a temple on the earth. Tyrone talked about it last week with the two witnesses and how the Jewish people will, hope, will want to one day rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. And you know, it's crazy when you look into this temple organization that people want to rebuild everything. The one thing they won't have is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's very interesting that John says that God's temple in heaven is opened and in there, the Ark of the Covenant is seen by everybody. So God's temple, God's temple, though it's physical here, it carried a lot of symbolism in the Old Testament. And the temple, whether it be the tabernacle during the wilderness years or the temple that Solomon built, it was a physical reminder and a symbol of God's presence in his people, among his people. So as the people of Israel, they're wandering you know, through the wilderness. Whenever they camp, the cloud of the fire rested on the tabernacle in the center of the camp. You know, all you had to do as an Israel was look at your tent. Oh, there's God's presence right, right over there. You know, it sounds like this amazing thing, but you just open your tent and God's over there in the tabernacle. He is amongst his people. And it's the same thing when the temple was built. You could go to Jerusalem and spend time in God's space, the temple. But it was also a place of separation. I think Reggie was going to have a picture of what some believe the tabernacle would have been like. So that's the main tent of the tabernacle, right? I always find it interesting how these Babylonian lines on it, which is kind of weird. But for the tabernacle, there were, there were, on the outside, there were these white sheets that made up the courtyard. And so though you were an Israelite looking at your tent, you notice there's this big white curtain around the tabernacle, so you can't see what's going on inside. Now, if you do go inside, you bring an animal, you sacrifice it to God, and you can have fellowship with God in his space in the tabernacle. But then when you get into the courtyard, you notice, hey, there's a big tent blocking off God's presence for me. And if you're not a priest who's a Levite, you can't go in that tent. Now say you are a Levite. You can go into that tent, but you can only go as far as there. You notice when you go in the tent, there is a big curtain in front of you that separates you from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so it's a symbol of God's presence, also that there is something that separates mankind 
and God. There's something that separates that access to the throne, to the Ark of the Covenant. And only one man could enter that once a year, the high priest, and that was by blood. What does John say here? The temple was opened, and everyone who looked at that temple could see the Ark of the Covenant. So what was missing? The veil. There is no veil in God's temple. See, the veil was this huge physical barrier between you and God. And no one bar one man could ever go through that veil. If you tried to touch it, you'd be killed. If you tried to tear it, well, if you read the scriptures, it's quite thick. But it's also very, very high. You could not tear that thing down by yourself. It was unattainable. Nothing you could do could get this veil out of the way. But where is the veil now? It was torn from top to bottom. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 27, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he dies for the sins of the world, it tells us that at that moment, the, temp, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Something that only God could have done. The barrier between God and man was torn down. Christ's death on the cross has torn down that veil between us and God. Christ has removed that barrier. Paul says in Romans that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so much more we can rejoice that we are reconciled and saved by his life. Paul says that we were alienated from God. We are hostile to God. We were enemies of God. But he has reconciled us to God by his death, that we can be holy and blameless and above reproach, above shame from God. I think the thing, to take away, the thing to take away from that is this, is that God has a desire for each and every one of you to know him and to experience him. You know, there is a barrier, this pulpit between us right now. There is nothing between you and God. It's as clear as if I went down here, there is nothing between you and me. That is the access that you as Christians have to God. Hebrew says we can go boldly with confidence before the throne of grace because Jesus has torn down that veil between us and God. God wants us to know him, to experience him, and to love him. And we are created for that purpose. God longs to be with you. And so will you go to God? Will you go to him in prayer? Because again, you can go to him at any point. He is your father in heaven. He is Abba Father. You can go to him at any point of your life and bring your request to him. Seek his help in time of need. You can go before him and have confidence that he's going to hear you. You know, sometimes Nora comes up to me and I might be cooking or, you know, worse on my phone, and I don't hear her. And so she'll start dragging on my leg to try to get my attention. God hears us. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is teaching his apostles how to pray. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles who heap up words. What he's saying is, don't, he's not saying don't speak long prayers. He's saying that the Gentiles, they would say prayers over and over and over again in the hopes that maybe God will hear me if I say it long enough. God hears you once. God knows your needs, Jesus says. 
And if we go to him and he, at any point, he knows our needs, we can have assurance that he will answer us. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. You know, we're going into a time of worship where we can come before our Father in heaven. We have access to him. So what have we learned this morning? This world is passing away, but there is a future world with Christ as king to enjoy. This world is passing away, but Christ has called us to be faithful here and now. And this world is passing away, but our access to God and our fellowship with our Father is forever. And that is eternal life, knowing the Father in Jesus Christ who he has sent. Amen?